Philip Donnelly is professor in the Honors College of Baylor University. He is the author of Milton's Scriptural Reasoning. He's also the co-editor of Transformations in Biblical Literary Traditions. Uh, his new book is The Lost Seeds of Learning, Grammar, Logic, and Rhetoric as Life-Giving Arts. That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Donnelly. Thank you for having me. You begin with a, a basic reminder uh, uh, somewhere at, uh, near the, the beginning of, uh, of the Bible. It says that God speaks creation into being. What is the implication for us as speaking animals? Yes, I think it clearly implies that this is one of the crucial ways in which humans are like God and made in the divine image. I think that passage in particular in Genesis, uh, the beginning of Genesis, does illustrate how it is that humans are clearly not God and yet also implicitly also like God in certain ways. And that's uh, one of the ways in which we are then called to participate in the good gift of creation is by means of, of the naming of things uh, and by the use of, of language. You also highlight uh, the other side of, of communication. For Christians, this God speaking creation into being uh, lays out a very important goal of education, and that being a listening one, or as you put it, quote, to improve the ability to hear the divine voice. This is an explicit goal of education, yes? Yes. I think that's the uh, one of the seldom acknowledged benefits of a training in the verbal arts, and by that I mean specifically grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Uh, they have, of course, other benefits as well that people have often noticed, right? The ability to attend to reality by connecting words to reality, but also uh, the ability to make logical arguments, the ability to persuade people. But I argue that ultimately all of this training in the verbal arts actually, for Christians, has its highest fulfillment in the uh, the practice of, of listening uh, to the divine voice. That reference to the divine voice doesn't appear too often in standards, curricular descriptions, especially in their so heavily skills-oriented uh, approach to things. Uh, you, you, you relate this the skills approach, uh, sort of a utilitarian conception, to modernity uh, at, at large. How has modernity blocked our capacity to hear the divine voice? Well, it functions in a couple of different ways with respect to our language instruction. One of the ways is that the modern media culture encourages us to believe that there's such a thing as verbal content that has no agent or no form or no purpose. And uh, with this often happens under the rubric of what's called information. Uh, and there is such a thing as information, but when you reduce verbal communication to information, you're missing something important. You're obscuring the role of agency or usually the matter 
of the form or the end, and you're isolating this notion of matter. So that's when people will focus on content, and then some people realize that's problematic, and they'll switch, and they say, oh no, it's all about the skills, but that often ends up being uh, an emphasis upon an abstract form that has no relation to a content or a, an end or an agent. Uh, and then other people come along and say, oh, it's all about the agent. It's all about the, the student's learning. And, but they'll forget about the form and the content and the end. And so what I'm proposing is that when you understand actually grammar in particular uh, in light of the incarnation, one of the goals is to understand the unity between uh, this sense of agent and end and matter and form. Yeah. You know, have, have you done work on, on high school, say, curricula, standards, that kind, that kind of thing? Yeah, I've worked with a variety of classical schools uh, during their, using their um, faculty development uh, programs. And uh, what I typically try to do is to come alongside uh, faculty and to help them look at their practices. Because everybody's you know, obviously teaching at different grade levels, different, different content areas. And so there is a way in which a teacher needs to think through for themselves in light of the the ends that they have, both curricular ends uh, and ultimate formational ends for students. You know, what does this mean for my classroom practice? And often uh, we can fall into an either a kind of abstract skills model or just a content model um, or, or just a it's all about the children and not really coming to terms with any reality outside their own head kind of problem. And so being able to, my goal is to come alongside faculty and help them think through what this vision uh, looks like for them in practice because uh, it is it's one of those things that each teacher has to in a sense answer for for themselves uh, with respect to the, the particular situation that they're in yeah you know you speak of information culture uh, as, a, as a term and contrast that with the full appreciation of verbal arts uh, professor Donnelly when we reduce the text to information the poem, the novel, the treatise. Wouldn't that make reading awfully boring for students? Yes, it does. And, and it makes education boring. Uh, and uh, it, it makes it uh, existentially uh, irrelevant. Right? Uh, and the irony, right, is that, that people will talk about uh, information as though it's, it's neutral, and yet, at the same time, it has, it's often commodified, right? And that's the, 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 the bait and switch, I think, that goes with our discourse of information is that uh, part of its appeal is that it's pretending to be something that it's not, uh, which is uh, fundamentally you know, uh, disinterested. Uh, and, and in fact, there are um, kind of ends involved in every discourse, whether it be a, remembering that there are human authors to Wikipedia articles uh, or, or as the case may be, that there are um, there are purposes embedded in the, the discourse themselves. Uh, but for students, yeah, the, the the emphasis upon information often ends up being just uh, boring and and irrelevant, uh, and that's why education, I think, traditionally has been understood as uh, engaging the whole person. That is to say, engaging. Uh, the affections, as well as the understanding, um, as well as uh, the, the need to you know, self-regulate the appetite. So, uh, 
uh, every aspect of, of the person. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems is that the, the informational side turns words into tools, and you, you really want to take the metaphor very seriously, seeds. Words are seeds. Uh, how, do, how do words operate as seeds? First question, and then follow-up, how does that alter the, the conception of learning? Yeah, so there's, there's two steps to this, which is simply to say that what I'm arguing for is that we need to preserve the possibility that, in fact, our words can be like seeds, rather than just presuming that they're always reducible to tools. Uh, I suggest there are a variety of metaphors. You know, some, some words are like poison. Right? Some, some words are like different kinds of tools, but some words... Being able to understand that the words can be like seeds is important to preserve because that's the way in which, in effect, uh, we preserve the possibility to imagine that, that life can be communicated through words and that the source of that life doesn't originate with us uh, and that that's what's preserved in the image of a seed. Whereas if you assume that words are reducible to tools, and again, I'm not opposed to sometimes speaking of them as tools in certain ways, um, as long as we don't mistake the tool for a neutral tool, which um, doesn't really exist, but if we think of them as purposive tools, they have ends in them, that's great. But if we only think of words as just like tools, then we're missing something important, and we're missing specifically the possibility that language could communicate a purpose that's not merely human, uh, that, that it could in fact communicate life, uh, and that could serve an end, um, uh, a good that is, is more than human. And uh, that's, in effect, what the image of a seed allows us to preserve. Uh, and also, it, the, I guess the other element here is the genealogical character of our language, which often uh, is obscured um, in an information culture uh, which thinks of language as tools. So if you understand, you know, each, when we recognize words as seeds, you see that they're there's the possibility of transmitting life through an act of self-giving over time among individual persons. And that's all embedded in this image of, of uh, a seed rather than a tool. And when we uh, think of education, coming to the last part of your, your question there, we think of education this way, uh, the, it, it's ultimately the, the question of whether a teacher understands him or herself to be the steward of a, of a life that's, that you're sharing with others uh, rather than simply manipulating uh, inert things at the other end, right? Are you simply practicing uh, a version of sophistry, which is the use of words to manipulate people, or are you actually communicating a life uh, across time that you've been given and that are called to share with others? Yeah. Don't you find it odd, Professor Donnelly, that the people who, you, you mentioned tools as sort of neutral, it's just what people do with them, that the people who believe that words can sort of be neutral tools in this way are often the ones who claim that there is no such neutrality in, in other spheres. Everything's political. Everything's ideological. Everyone has an angle, and suddenly words are, are, are neutral. When I was reading your descriptions of that, I, I was thinking, you know, they, they want to have it both ways, don't they? Yes, that is, that is one of the most palpable performative self-contradictions of our age, I think, is, is that 
specific thing you've identified that on the one hand, uh, people will want to say words are neutral, uh, and yet uh, they will uh, they will tend to assume, I, I guess the underlying continuity there is is what the, the heavy theological word for this is an ontology of violence. That is that, that there are, there's only deception or compulsion. That's all. And, and mm -hmm. that's the vision. Uh, so language is a tool for either deception or compulsion, and it's just a matter of getting your tribe to deceive or compel another tribe. And if that's your vision of, of uh, human flourishing, um, and again, this is uh, this isn't a modern thing. This is as early as, you know, book one of the Republic. This is the vision of language advocated by Thrasymachus, right? Uh, this is, um, so this is an ancient kind of sophist view of, of language uh, and, and of human society uh, that's been uh, made current in our cultural context for a variety of reasons. Um, and it obviously takes a specific form in the early modern period. Uh, but uh, this this view of language is part of this, this contradiction of saying now it's neutral and yet the only thing that, um, that really counts is the ability to, to use language to either compel or, 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 or deceive others. That's, that it, yeah. that, that's a sign of the times. Yeah, yeah. You devote many pages to C.S. Lewis's abolition of man, which uh, we recall begins with a study by a progressive education uh, expert. That, that's his springboard text. Give us the main uh, educational rhetorical lessons you draw from Lewis's little book. Yes, well, I, I walk through the book and I, I basically try to draw out uh, the implications of his argument for how we imagine the activity of learning by... Uh, Picking up on a phrase that he mentions at the end, which is he talks about the possibility of what he calls a regenerate science. And I suggest that embedded in his three arguments uh, for the notion of objective moral worth that he presents in The Abolition of Man, he presents three arguments, and in each of those, he's basically appealing to uh, something that would, in fact, be implicitly addressed by this notion of. Uh, of a regenerate science or a regenerate approach to knowing. And uh, what I suggest is the, the argument has to do with attending to the, uh, the, the value of what's known, uh, but also the agents uh, who's doing the knowing, um, as well as the, um, the assumed purposes of the inquiry. Uh, and the, so I pick up on those are implicit in the three chapters and by thinking about what would a regenerate science what would a regenerate approach to knowing look like he uh, he actually I think proposes uh, an attention to recognizing that there are people involved in the inquiry as well as the fact that there there's intrinsic worth in the things that we investigate uh, and that there are uh, ends embedded in, in the, the inquiry itself now, the thing that I think he leaves, that he doesn't address, that I draw out in terms of the, uh, the, the fourth question, is the question of, of, uh, of the form of knowing. And I suggest that actually has to be addressed by individual practitioners in a given discipline. And that's why he doesn't take it up directly. But, uh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, 
what I suggest is that the first two arguments that he makes are recovering the notion of a purpose that's intrinsic to a, a discourse, and the final one that has to do with um, what I call the traditionary character of inquiry is where he's actually getting at the need for an image more like a seed. So it becomes the way of, of recognizing, oh, actually, so even having a purposive tool isn't quite enough if you're going to think about uh, the transmission of knowledge over time among persons. Yeah, very good. You look at grammar as not simply a conventional structure invented by human beings. The, the grammar actually reflects the ways in which people, actions, and things interact in the world. The arrangement of words has to have some correspondence with, with reality, correct? The, yes, I say there's an analogical relationship. Uh, it may not strictly be relationship, it may be some other syntactic relation, but the words uh, in their relation to one another are revealing some aspect of the world to which they were. Uh, what if everyone starts using a double negative? Now, I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, now, I, I, want to, I want to say, look, Mick Jagger can say that, but nobody else can, okay? I don't care what the, what, what the stinking linguists say, okay? We need, we, need, we need to hold to the king's English. Am I, please tell me I'm right, Professor Donnelly, please. I, I don't know if I can tell you you're right, because there's the, the poets, you know, that the, the, you have to make an exception for the, the innovation in language. And, and C.S. Lewis famously made this, this point that, that there is a way in which language is inherited and does, does change over time, but it can change for the worse or the better. There are some languages in which a double negative is perfectly fine to, as an intensifier. In some cases, it's a negate. It's, it's a, it's a zero-sum game, right? And that's right. a difference between languages that you inherit. But uh, you can't just just arbitrarily decide, well, even though I'm, I'm you know, speaking French, I'm going to use the, the double negative in the English way, right? I mean, if you're speaking in the context of a given language, you are the recipient of that. Uh, that tradition. Of course, if you're an accomplished practitioner in that language and you, you can introduce innovation uh, and, and poetic creativity and variation, but the question then, uh, Lewis makes the good point that that means that that innovation can be either destructive or, or constructive with respect to the, the language's power to communicate and to move and to, uh, to contribute to the common good. So it doesn't necessarily, just because languages change over time doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's, it's all uh, random, uh, random and arbitrary. Right. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll grant the occasional poet. Okay, yes, fine, fine. Rarely. <laughs> all right, uh, 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 logic, if it's not too elementary, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we'll, we'll go from grammar to, to, to logic. Uh, can you explain the word logos once more for us? Sure. Uh, the Greek word logos uh, has a, a reception in the Latin tradition that really shows how it actually functions much more broadly than we would think of either as logic. It includes logic, but it also includes uh, word as in grammar but also uh, whole discourses of persuasion, as in rhetoric, but also uh, calculation in the sense of mathematics. So the Greek word logos is much broader 
Um, and when we turn to the, the, the notion of logic as it develops in, in the later tradition, that, um, that specifically, I focus on deductive logic there. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, and its place in, uh, in ultimately in, in, in a kind of formation uh, that, uh, that enables people to participate uh, in, uh, in, in actually the, the, the use of words in a way that actually leads them to, to worship. And that's where I ultimately end up going, but there's a few steps in between there. Well, well one thing, you, you say that logic, logos has a cruciform nature. Well, mm. What do you mean by that? Well, there I'm referring to uh, the Christian understanding specifically of, of logos as self-giving. And so in the same way that you know, Jesus famously describes himself as being like a seed that must die in order to communicate new life, right? That, uh, that's what I mean by cruciform. In the same way uh, that a seed has to die for the new life, so also with uh, oh, the Christian understanding then of words as involving a kind of self-giving risk. The other part of this is that in light of the, the biblical exegesis that I do in, in chapter 4, it also means that a person can become a word, right? And that's also, I think, important to recognize that, that uh, that's, that's opposite there. Um, and so it's the, the, the way in which then language can function as part of that self-giving, both on the part of individuals and the part of communities, ultimately uh, uh, this obviously flourishes and, and kind of comes to full flowering in the life of the church as imitating Christ. And, and practicing that self-giving and using words to do that. Right. You note that two attributes of an adept practitioner of logic uh, are rather unusual. Hope and courage. How do those virtues relate to the capacity to draw valid inferences? Yeah. So one of the things that's important to understand when in the basics of logic is that you can have a perfectly valid argument that's false. This is one of the first things you learn when you study logic, right, is that uh, a, a, an argument's validity is really a claim about its relationships between its propositions. But if you have a false assumption, then you're going to have a false conclusion, even if it's a perfectly valid argument. This is one of the earliest things you learn in logic. So what what logic enables you to do when it's valid logic is it's truth preserving uh, and that's uh, that means that it really depends in some respect on you know, assumptions when you're doing deductive logic but what I suggest is that when you then go from logic to what I call dialectic which is the application of logic by asking questions about the meanings of terms and propositions and the relationship between propositions logically, then you're doing dialectic and you're, you're actually trying to find out the truth of things through that process of inquiry. And that requires hope, right? That's where the hope comes in, in the sense that you uh, are trusting that there's going to be uh, an end, that there, there, the truth will, will um, and also requires courage. That is, the courage part is connected up with humility in terms of recognizing, oh, I've made a mistake here, there's actually, I've got these, these terms that I put together in this proposition and they won't work. And through the dialectical process of inquiry, you realize the mistaken assumptions that you've made and you actually come to uh, 
to recognize that, and that's what requires courage. So right. it's courage for the journey of discovery uh, that is based on hope. Rhetoric. The age-old question, how do we distinguish good rhetoric from sophistry? The sh shortest way to make this distinction, and the clearest way, is to, uh, to think of sophistry as the belief that you can reduce persuasion to a technique that doesn't need to account for the good. So if you believe I've got this technique here and I can apply this technique and get these guaranteed results, uh, you know, you pay me this much money and I've got this technique of persuasion and I will get this many million people to buy whatever, that's classic sophistry. Because it's based on a technique that does not regard either the, the content or the listeners or the, 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 the uh, people receiving the, the persuasion as uh, anything other than tools. By contrast, genuine persuasion uh, is uh, insisting that, in fact, the engagement of the whole person can be oriented towards a genuine human good. And, and that's, I think, important to recognize because a lot of Christians will think of rhetoric as just sophistry or just as a technique. Um, and when they do that, they're actually in some way presuming that, uh, uh, that in fact, um, genuine persuasion is not possible, right? That in the sense of Christian persuasion that's oriented towards the good. Um, mm -hmm. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of if you're presuming that really it's all either deception or violence, then, then that's, your, uh, that's a vision of reality uh, that you're assuming if you think that, that's, that everything is, in fact, sophistry. But what I'm calling genuine persuasion is possible. That engages the affections as well as the understanding. Um, so it appeals to what they call ethos, pathos, and logos um, together. Uh, and of course, this is very Augustinian. This is the kind of thing that Augustine would say that it's, it's uh, uh, not sufficient simply to get more information about God, but you actually need to love God. And that's it's that participation in the communion with God that is the highest end. Um, or as Aquinas would say, friendship with God, which is the form of charity, right? It's because that's where the, the locus of uh, human experience of divine self-giving happens. Uh, that's why it's actually essential to Christian formation that you have a vision of, of persuasion that is, in fact, oriented towards the human good as being at least possible. Recognizing, of course, lots of people do practice uh, false persuasion and corrupt persuasion, but it's not, it's simply, my point here is simply that it's not inevitable. And, and it's important for Christians to insist that, that it's not inevitable uh, because uh, of the nature of, of uh, the Christian faith. Uh, last question, Professor Donnelly. Uh, chapter 7 extols the value of Latin learning. What makes that dead language so valuable to young Americans in 2023? Excellent question. The, the short answer is to say there's two answers. Right? There's the, the one answer is formative. One is to say, imagine you want to actually be aware of how you use your language instead of simply being the victim of other people's propaganda. Well, the only way you can do that is by being self-reflective about your own language and learning how to do that. But you can't do that very well in English, as 
decades of English grammar instruction have shown us that trying to understand English grammar by studying English is like trying to poke your own eye out to get a better look at it. So it's actually uh, a key way in which you become self-reflective about your own language use in English by studying Latin because the way in which Latin is taught using translation. By the time that you have uh, made your deliberative choices when you're translating a Latin passage and you've done it thousands of times, uh, recognizing that you could translate a word in a variety of ways and you make decisions about how to do those translations, you have a self-awareness about English that you couldn't get any other way. Even if you forget all your Latin, you will not forget your self-awareness about your own English language. That's the first part. The other part of it is that there is, in fact, a living tradition in the present with respect to most academic disciplines and, in fact, many of the practical arts as well, whether you're thinking about metallurgy or, uh, or beekeeping. There's a, uh, a written history before 1900, right? And you say, well, why would I want to read something before 1900? Um, well, I argue that that, in fact, is the key to practicing intellectual leadership in the present. If you as a, a scholar are going to understand any more than the last 25 minutes of a scholarly conversation, you really you need to know Latin. And the, of course, you can access some of the texts in translation, but if you can't uh, read Latin, you don't know how good or bad the translations actually are. So, uh, so the two aspects, one is the formational benefit, the self-awareness of your own language that saves you from being a victim of other people's propaganda. The other part is the intellectual leadership formation that you get. And, of course, the other part of the intellectual leadership thing is that this is genuinely, generally the, the most capacious preparation because we don't actually know who is going to be called upon to do what. We can't actually predict the future regarding you know, what areas of intellectual leadership uh, this student in particular is going to be called to practice. This student could end up being uh, the person who actually needs to know Latin in order to to do a particular thing, or you don't know what other foreign languages they'll have to learn, but this is the most capacious uh, basis for further learning. Uh, and of course, other languages are important. Modern languages are important as well as biblical languages. Uh, but I make the case that Latin is important specifically because we live in the modern world. Uh, that is to say, all of the modern academic disciplines have their foundation in Latin. And if you're going to have any historical perspective on it, you need to know Latin. Very good. The book is The Lost Seeds of Learning, Grammar, Logic, and Rhetoric as Life-Giving Arts. Professor Donnelly, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. <laughs>